นโมตัสสะบุคคะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบุคคะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบุคคะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนัมสังDuring the introduction to the meditation, I commented that if we approach our meditation in a, a careful, caring kind of way, in a kindly manner, then we can learn from everything that we come across in our minds. The natural activity of our minds are actually is what teaches us. If we're too willful, trying too hard, then we become stressed and anxious and discontented and. And even can get disheartened, and not only might we you know, give up what we're doing, we we also see we can also end up seeing a lot of the the good things that are that are already there in our minds in our hearts. We might miss them, miss the point, and and not learn from them. So it's really important that we we do make an effort to uh, remember to. Be 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 careful as we as we apply our effort and practice, and not not let our um, perhaps our habits of worldliness kind of creep in. Now, the professional world we're all familiar with; everybody's working harder these days, despite the fact that we have more conveniences and, and better technology. Uh, higher standard of living. Uh, it seems everybody is working harder and is feeling less contented. And the ethos and, and the workplace seems to be that we have to keep trying harder, keep meeting higher targets, and and this this determined effort, which may be what you you have to actually uh, work with in the workplace. If we bring this into our formal meditation. Can have uh, really uh, unfortunate consequences. It would be understandable if we did bring it in because there's, there's some of it around. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's so busy trying to get somewhere to do something. And, but if we come to a sit in our meditation and think, "I've got to try to make my mind peaceful. I've got to, I've got to uh, get somewhere. I've got to achieve something." I've got to reach this target. I've got to attain this state of tranquility, or reach this insight, or whatever. This very trying actually stirs the mind up and and makes us more discontented. It brings confusion, actually, and the confusion, the confusion can be uh, can make things worse. You know, this is not just theory. I know for myself that I sometimes I've. 
let myself get too busy and get all stressed and and doing too many things. Even as a monk, you might think the monk's life is, is wonderfully relaxed and supportive and well, yeah, in principle, it's very conducive. And but we sometimes let ourselves get a little bit too busy and. And you can, I find if I, I drop below a certain level of ease, my, my mind is very unreliable. And I can just think that what I've got to do is more, I've got to do more. When reality is I'm losing the plot and I really need to be doing less and to pull back and relax and, and not try so hard. But uh, this can happen to all of us. So once you get past a certain point, uh, it's not actually... Uh, clear anymore what we're doing, confusion takes over and I can remember actually not that many years ago when I, I was really strung out and, and I was faced with some big meeting and I forget what it was now but it was a big gathering of people and, and I'd been really exercising my mind quite strenuously and managing, holding together some gathering and I was trying to think what I was supposed to be doing and we were chanting the Karaniyamitta Sutta, you know, the Buddha's words on loving kindness, and I think I even had a microphone on, and I was bellowing away. You know how it's supposed to go that even as a mother protects with her her life, her child, her only child, and what I heard myself saying was, even as a mother protects with her child, her life, her only life, and <laughs> you're bellowing out over a microphone. You've got this idea of a mother holding up a child. <laughs> <laughs> embarrassing and <laughs> well we you know we can get caught up and now that's a, only a small embarrassing incident but we can really make our lives very complicated if we forget the basic principle of contentment and ease and so that's why I began the the beginning of the meditation to say that we just start the meditation being really careful, really kindly and, and I think it's a good ritual to just make a point every time you come to sit just to stop and just to use these words careful, kindly, caring and just these words can can help us stop the momentum of our daily life now this is of course why we have the rituals of, of bowing, offering candles and incense to the shrine we're not praying to this idol here to bring us blessings, of course. That's nothing like what we're doing at all. It's a skillful means for actually bringing the whole body, and then when we chant, bringing our chant, bringing the speech, the body and speech, and then eventually mind all together into this present moment to be here fully consciously, as consciously as we can in this present moment, so as to inquire into this present moment so as to pull out of the momentum of our daily life activity. So beginning meditation with such rituals, but also as we come to sit, then I would, I would encourage just using these words to remind us to disengage from that rather worldly attitude of always trying to get somewhere and become something, which is based on a, on a fundamental judgment there's something wrong with me the way I am. Now we all know there's room for improvement, but if we if we come in from a basic fundamental judgment that I'm wrong, that in a way that kind of taints everything we do, all the effort that we make, 
and it brings, as I was saying, brings about a stress to the practice. I've got to, got to get rid of these bad things. We can operate like that, and there is even a way of picking up the teachings that, that can make you feel like that's what's being encouraged. But it's also possible to actually just to learn from that very tendency of mind, just to see what happens. What does it feel like when we're always caught up and trying to get somewhere? And what does it feel like? What does it feel like when we simply acknowledge that trying to get somewhere? See it, actually, call it by its name, say trying to be somewhere, trying to be somewhere, and drop it. In the seeing, actually, it falls away. And I recognize they're trying to be somewhere. Ah, trying to be somewhere. That's not necessary. Not a judgment, just seeing it, trying to be something other than what I am. And in the seeing, there's a letting go. In that mindfulness, there's a letting go. And in the letting go, then there's the feeling of the benefit of being here. And then when we feel the benefit of this increased sense of presence of being here in the moment, what does that feel like? Oh, it actually feels feel better just to be with this moment, to be contented. So if we approach practice with a, an interest in learning from the natural activity of our minds, then our practice is something we can take everywhere. There is a way of understanding or approaching Buddhist practice as if it's a very complicated, highly sophisticated practice that only a few select people can do. Now, sometimes the teachings are presented in a way that give us that impression. I don't personally think that's very helpful. Uh, The Buddha made it very clear that his teaching was for the benefit of all beings. And and he, he taught in many different ways so that many different types of people could benefit. What's important is that we actually have the conviction that there is a real reality, that we trust that there is Dhamma, that there is truth. It's not all just chaos. There is, there is organization, there is form behind the chaos. They exist at the same time, in the same place. Sometimes we just see the chaos. But if we have a faith that there is order as well, then we can look deeper behind, beyond the chaos. And and so if we're willing to learn from everyday activity, not just hold up Buddhism as some kind of special practice that, that we need special conditions to do and a special level of understanding and have to understand all sorts of concepts and complicated scriptures and teachings. And if you just say, well, to understand this moment is enough. There's a wonderful story in the, the commentaries and the scriptures about a young man called Anupapa. You might have heard me talk about this before. He was, a, um, he was like most of us, basically. He was a rich kid. Like, he never had to go without anything, like all of us, really. We've been brought up in, in such luxury. We've never really had to go hungry or go without shelter or clothing or so on. And, and although he had everything, actually he was, a, he was the son of a banker way back in the time of the Buddha and he never had to go without anything, but he wasn't happy, he wasn't contented. And and so one day he approached one of the monks, one of the disciples of the Buddha on arms round, and, and uh, this guy saw this monk who, you know, walking around with his arms bowl and bare feet, shaven head, you know, doesn't seem to have a lot, but he seems fairly contented. And so 
this young man asked this monk, he said, well, what, you know, what's the secret? And, and uh, the, the, the young monk, the monk told this young man, and said, well, there's these teachings that I follow, the teachings of the Buddha, and so he talked to him about the various aspects of the teaching about practicing generosity. If you could just be a little bit more generous, your life might brighten up a bit. And so this, this, uh, this young guy started practicing generosity, made sure he was giving alms food regularly and so on. And, and, but it did maybe increase his sense of contentment a little bit, but he still was feeling dissatisfied. And so the same monk then encouraged him to say, well, you could tidy up your, your behavior a little bit and you know, live a little bit more impeccably. And so he did that too. And so he got this graduated teaching about the different levels of practice, and he still wasn't contented. So the monk said, "Well, it looks like you're going to have to you know, shave your head and join the order, and become a monk. And if you if you can't make it, you've got everything, and you're practicing a, a generous moral lifestyle. What you need to do is really focus your attention inwardly, and the best way to do that is to become a monk. And so, so this uh, this young man went forth as a bhikkhu and applied himself very diligently to the training and. And uh, he had a lot of faith in the beginning, was probably very enthusiastic and bright-eyed, as monks often are in the beginning, when they first start out, really full of energy and enthusiasm. But in no time, he started to get depressed and miserable. And the scriptures talk about how a novice came across this young monk standing there and uh, described him being skinny and green in color and his veins sticking out and a wretched, kind of miserable, scorny monk. And the Samanera, the novice, asked this uh, bhikkhu, Anupabha was his name. Anupabha means gradually come one, because he'd come in these gradual stages of practice. And this novice asks Venerable Anupabha, well, you know, what's, what's, uh, what's up? What's the story? And he says, oh, I've lost faith. I thought that becoming a bhikkhu was going to solve my problems, but it's actually worse than it was before. So I've given up. I'm not practicing anymore. And so the Samanera, being a good Samanera, went off and told his his teacher told his acharya and, and he said, is it true Anupabha that you've given up your reflection on the 32 parts of the body and given up your meditation, given up your reflection on the teachings of the Buddha and, and Anupabha says, yes it's true, I just lost faith basically yeah, I, I thought that um, becoming a monk was going to solve all the problems but actually it's made things worse and so, so his acharya his teacher took him off to see the Lord Buddha and so they went through the same thing and the Lord Buddha looked at this scorny young monk and said, is it true you've lost faith in my teachings and you've given up reflecting on the 32 parts of the body and contemplating my teachings and meditation and Anupabha in his depressed sort of slumped over miserable state, I suppose he was he said, yes it's true Lord I, I went forth thinking that becoming a monk was going to inspire me and and I was going to be able to get to the root of the sense of lacking and the sense of frustration and, and such comments. And, but he said, from the time I ordained, I just, I just get bombarded with all this, all this stuff. My Upachaya, he's a, he's a, a Vinaya master and he, he gives me all these rules, there's 227 rules that I've got to learn and reciting the Patimokha and, and then the Acharya, he's, he's getting me to recite all these suttas. I don't know how many suttas there are I've got to learn, I've got to recite these suttas and memorize all these teachings. And, and he used the expression, he said, there's not even enough room to stretch my arms, I just feel so cramped, you know, I need a break. So on this occasion the Buddha said, well, he said, that is a lot. You know, the way you put it, it does sound a lot. He said, do you think you could do just one thing? 
And Anupavada says, oh yeah, I can do one thing. There's no doubt about that. I can do one thing. It's just all this I can't do. And so uh, the Lord Buddha on that occasion said, well, I want you to do one thing. So I, want you, I just want you to just, just watch your mind. Now, I don't know the exact part of what the Buddha said, but I imagine it was not just get caught up in your mind, but watch your mind in the present moment. Watch your mind. Now, we hear the teachings, and sometimes the teachings are so complicated, and sometimes they're very clever, sometimes they're very amazing and dazzling in their brilliance, and we can proliferate on them, and we can get caught up in thinking about them, and just they can just complicate our life more. And since that's what we're used to doing, proliferating and following ideas and being initi- taking initiative and having innovative ideas and creative ideas about things, we can apply the same sort of proliferation to the Buddha's teachings and just speculate. And But that's not the point of the Buddha's teaching. Yeah. The Pali word for this is, is this proliferation is prapancha. It's proliferating, just always building one thing after another and building on it, building on it. And you know what it's like? The mind can just speculate and go on and on and on and on. Well, it, it might have a function if it's contained in developing some creative ideas in a business or in doing some experiments and, and looking at you know, new ways of, of inquiring into something. But when it becomes compulsive, actually it's very destructive. Of, of tranquility, of clarity, of contentment, and we become increasingly confused. And so, uh, the Buddha identified this tendency of mind, perpunctual or proliferation, and said, "This is actually unhealthy. This is unskillful." Now, to be able to be innovative, but not be driven by it, that's skillful. To be creative, whatever that word means, people use it in all sorts of ways, but generally speaking, to have a creative approach to situations in life can be skillful, but if we're driven, then it's unskillful. And so it's wise to reflect on where we're being driven in our activity of body, speech and mind, and to train ourselves. And so there's uh, uh, something that I learned in my very first year as a monk that that is if you, if you can if you can't choose to not act or not speak, then you should consider it compulsive behavior. Yeah. If you can't choose to not act or not speak, then you should consider it compulsive behavior. In other words, you've been, you're not in place of re- position of responsibility. You're being driven, and so the training is that you know with activity or speech it's a, it's, it's a good exercise I, I use this myself I've used this throughout my life as a monk and I still use it now I, you know, I feel driven to do something and uh, like maybe it's I, maybe like pointing something out to somebody sometimes it's somebody in the monastery just, it's just somebody just needs to tell them basically look you've been here long enough to know better it's uh, you know we, we're all doing our job around here and we're all helping each other out except for you you basically you just ask everybody else to help you and and you need basically to shape up or ship out and I sometimes feel this way and I I could feel like I've really got to go and tell this this person this and and what I what I what I'd like to do what I train myself to do is just to see well can I choose to not tell this person this person really needs to know. He's been brought up 
in a situation where he never had to look after himself, he's never done a day's work in his life, and you know, here he is sitting around feeding us like a servant. And he really does need to be told. And, and it's my place as the abbot of the monastery to tell him. But if I'm being driven, if I can't choose to not say it, it's compulsive. And what he'll hear, actually, what he'll hear is that that force of being driven. He, he won't hear, he won't get a skillful reflection that he can learn from. What he'll get from me is this, you're wrong for being that way and you've got to change to please me. And of course that's not going to help. So whether it's with our speech or also with our action. There's sometimes there's things that you just, oh, if I can just try that. It's like maybe on the computer, you've got a little problem with the computer and there's something that you you try this and you try that and you you just can't get it. It's just why won't it? Why won't this program supposed to work like this? But it won't work like this. It's it stops there and it just it won't do what it's supposed to do. And you try all the tricks and you close the machine down and reboot and it still won't work. And and so oh, you go and make a cup of tea and and then you sit down and you think about. It. And as soon as you sit down, and you start to think about. I oh, know I've got it and. And you go, you go rush out there back to your computer room, and well, actually, what it's quite good to do, you might have got it, but it's quite good actually to just sit there and say, "I think I've got the solution, but can I choose to not go and do it right now? Can I choose? Can I choose, or am I driven?" Now, if we, if you can hear what I'm saying, this is not taking a position against having a, a creative uh, imagination, not at all. Uh, the dexterity of um, our imagination is a, is a wonderful aspect of, of the human mind and is a great uh, tool in our investigation into life, a great asset. Unless we're identified with it, unless we're really clinging to it, and it feels like this is me. If we're clinging to it, then there's me involved and actually I become caught up and I become confused and there's no stopping me. And then I become a workaholic and ruin my relationships and, and uh, or in my case ruin, you know, disturb the peace and tranquility in the monastery so I would encourage uh, an attitude to our Buddhist practice of, of really keeping it simple and a willingness to learn from the natural mind an interest in learning from the natural mind you know, and so with these the story that I just told you about Anupabha, the Buddha's encouragement to learn to do just one thing prepare ourselves, train ourselves in our body and speech and mind not to be caught up and to be driven by doing, saying and thinking exercise, restraint not as some kind of, oh I shouldn't be caught up no, we, we don't need any more of that but rather out of interest you say, well, am I free to not speak? am I free to not do? Am I free to choose to not think about this? Or do I have to? Am I enslaved by, by this desire? Yeah. Which is actually the case for most of us a lot of the time. And we can learn from that. I mean, this, is, this can be practice. It's not just sitting on a cushion and making our mind peaceful, but being interested in this everyday activity of the mind and learning how to do one thing at a time, which is in this present moment really watching the mind not just getting caught up in all the myriad things, all the possibilities that this could happen and that can what of this, what of that 
coming back here to her own hearts, her own minds, and being with it in the moment, feeling that drivenness, and learning from that, learning what makes us feel good. What energy are we feeding on? You can be feeding on on this desire to solve a problem, you know, like um, a mathematical problem. It can be so fascinating. And you know you know the various theorems that you've proved them and you know the various pathways. And then you've got this complex little little really little juicy problem. And you can try this way and you can try that way and you can and and you can't get through there. Well actually the best thing is actually to be able to just put it down and go and make a cup of tea and really put it down and come back fresh. But can we come back fresh? Or is it we we're right we're chewing on it. It's not a juicy little morsel anymore, it's a kind of nasty, gristly bit of old tough meat uh, that we actually chew till it becomes leather. And then we actually really give ourselves a stomach ache and full of anxiety. Instead of being a beautiful nice, juicy mathematical problem that we can exercise ourselves on, it becomes something really rather uh, unpleasant. So, uh, hopefully you can hear that what I'm suggesting is it's the way that we engage these things that is important. And and if our practice is a willingness and an interest to learn from the natural activity of our minds, well then everything can be included. Everything Everything is practice. Right now in the monastery we have uh, somebody staying with us who is a stand-up comedian who I met when I was in Australia recently. Uh, he met me at the airport in Australia and, and walking through the airport, you know, everybody knew him. Well, not everybody, but lots of the security guards were going, how are you going? And kind of wave out to him. And he's, he's very famous in Australia. And... and Sometimes apparently he comes and does the festival in Edinburgh as well. And but uh, he, what well, he's really interested in practice, and he practices everywhere. You know, he's, he was talking to me about how interesting it is to feed on the energy of people's praise. You know, when you, you know, he talks about doing his gigs, and he's doing his gig, and it's working well, and you get everybody's attention, and it's really magic, and you get this good energy. But then when he's coming back and going through the airport, and he He's tired from doing his gigs and, and still people are waving at him and wanting his autograph and he actually not, doesn't want to feed on their attention then. He's not interested in their attention. In fact, he's irritated and annoyed by it. But with, a, with a, a mindfulness and an interest in the mind, one can study that too. We don't have to be caught up in our liking and disliking and and just trying to get our own way. Practice is learning from everything. learning uh, to receive the present moment in a way whereby we see beyond the way it just appears to be. Everybody's got, everything's got an apparent level and then it's got an essential level. Yeah. The apparent level is what in Buddhist speaking we call the world and the actual level is what we call the Dhamma, the reality. And if we're too caught up in our trying, too caught up in our wanting, uh, if our practice is too complicated, then you know, we become confused and, and all we can see is the apparent level, the superficial level, the initial level of things.
and that is basically if it looks good, if it accords with my preferences, then it's desirable and I should try and get it. If it looks bad and conflicts with my preferences, then I should try and avoid it and get rid of it. But the reality is not necessarily like that. If, if we allow ourselves to live on that level, then our investigation, our inquiry never really goes very deep. And we all have deep issues, we all have real life issues that need to be looked into. And the Buddha's teaching is an encouragement to look into that, but if we don't understand that we actually, we need to be interested in the present moment and seeing beyond the way things simply appear to be to the way things actually are. Like anger, when you feel angry at somebody, the apparent level, the initial reaction is, you irritated me, you hurt me, and either I want to hurt you or the very least is I don't want to ever talk to you again, I don't want to see you again. And that's basically a way of hurting you. And that's our reaction when somebody so-called hurts us. But And if we follow that, then that's what we do, and that's what a lot of people do, and then you end up getting all sorts of unpleasant relationships, and on a national level you end up getting wars, and there's no end to that, so long as one's still caught on a worldly level. But if we want to see beyond the wars of the world, if we want to see beyond the world, if we want to see to the reality, we've actually got to become interested in what really, what really is anger? What really is ang- what's the actuality of anger? Yeah. What happens when this this feeling of you hurt me arises? What is this feeling of hurt anyway? If we stop and look at the feeling of hurt, what we might come to see is that actually it's really me hurting myself, really, with my anger. me hurting myself with my anger. I'm doing the hurt, actually. I'm doing it. Yeah. I'm doing it. Do you think, if you ever had the privilege of meeting a, a profoundly wise being who's really gone beyond a lot of their conditioned tendencies, uh, you, you can see somebody actually giving, living a life that actually demonstrates the truth of this. Or if you, you read the scriptures, you can see how it was for the Buddha. I mean, you can imagine the Buddha saying to Devadatta, you hurt my feelings. Devadatta tried to, you know, as a Buddha's cousin. He was one of his best disciples. He was really profoundly skilled in, in attaining the jhanas and, and very good at giving discourses and, and a very exemplary bhikkhu. But then Devadatta, you know, Devadatta really did lose the plot. He, he, he basically got possessed with delusions of grandeur and tried to take over the order and tried, wanted to lead the order and when the Buddha didn't cooperate, he basically hired some people to take the Buddha out and literally tried to kill him. And uh, even after trying to kill him, Devadatta was still living in the monastery. Now, can you imagine the Buddha going to say to Devadatta, you hurt my feelings you know, by trying to kill me? <laughs> no way. Yeah, no way. Now, why, why, did, why, why wasn't the case that you, the Buddha, you couldn't hurt the Buddha's feelings? Not because the Buddha didn't feel. There's this beautiful description when, when the Buddha heard that his senior disciples, Sariputta and then Moggallana, had died. He talks about the perception of loss that he, he felt, this, this perception of loss 
arose in his mind. He said it was like the sun has gone out of the sky. There's no question about it. There was a perception of loss. The Buddha felt the sense of loss. But he didn't fall into despair because there wasn't what? What was missing? What was different for the Buddha? There wasn't grasping. There wasn't grasping that perception of loss. So there was no sense of I having lost somebody. So there was no suffering for the Buddha. Yes, there was a perception of loss. But there wasn't suffering. Now, this is not a philosophy, this is not a religious something to just be believed in, but rather an, an encouragement to inquire and to look into our own experience and see, well, what is it when I feel my feelings have been hurt? What in terms of practice, we were interested in learning from the natural mind. Well, of course we don't like having our feelings so-called hurt, but if we can look into that, if we're not caught up in willfully trying to always get somewhere in life and in our practice, and just doing one thing like a nupabar and being present, inquiring into the moment with interest, the pain of me having my feelings hurt appears like somebody's done or is doing something to me. But if we just inhibit that assumption and look deeper and hold it and feel the pain with our non-judgmental awareness here and now, not speculating about, well, what if this and what if that, and I should do this and I could do that, all that proliferation, all that propuncia, no, just inhibiting that, coming back and feeling what it feels like in the present moment, then maybe there'll be a shift and we'll see the experience in a new way. And when we see that experience in a new way, it, it's just the same as I was saying earlier about solving a mathematical problem. When, when you solved it, you know. It's a knowing for yourself. You know how to do that now. You know how to do that. You've, you've been there. You've been through that. And so it is with some of the moods, some of the experiences in life that, that stop us, that stump us, that trip us up over and over and over again. If we prepare ourselves and train ourselves to learn from the natural activity of the mind to be in the present moment, then it's these kind of things that actually teach us. Even the difficulties can teach us. In fact, it is the difficulties that teach us. And rather than there being enemies that we have to always protect ourselves against and to fight off and be afraid they're going to come to us again, there's part of us that doesn't necessarily like these challenging moments, but has there's a part of has a willingness, a willingness to receive the struggle in the moment as we're experiencing it. And so again, as I was mentioning in the meditation in the beginning, that rather than our practice becoming a process of achieving goals and reaching the mark and gaining credentials if we could shift our attention to look and see if we can be contented with an increased willingness, an increased willingness to be with the moment. We can measure that, we can measure our willingness. You know, say, I'm just not going to do it anymore, I've had enough. You know, like Sometimes in relationships, I've, just, I'm, I've had enough of you, I've had enough of you, I'm not going to take any more of your nonsense. I'm fed up with it. 
just complaining the whole time. Now we can do that in relationships, or we can say, actually, there's no limit. There is no limit to how much complaining I'm going to listen to from you. Now, probably better not to say that out loud to somebody, but <laughs> tempting, but inwardly within ourselves, we can, we can say that. You know, if you're with somebody who's difficult, you can just say, there is no limit to how much complaining I'm going to listen to from you. And then to ourselves, you say, there is no limit to the number of times I'm going to begin again, I'm going to come back to the breath, endless number of times. Not just in this life, but all future lives as well. I'm going to keep willingly beginning again. Thank you very much for your attention.